As I mentioned, we want to consider God's kingdom and the keys of the kingdom as summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 31. But first, we'll turn in God's Word to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, under the heading of the Kingdom's Keys. The Kingdom's Keys from Matthew 16. Let's begin reading at verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you, notice this, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Here ends the reading of God's Word. And then we'll turn also in our Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 31. We'll turn to Lord's Day 31, which can be found on page 235. Page 235 in the Forms and Prayer book in front of you. Beginning with question 83, what are the keys of the kingdom to which we respond, the preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline towards repentance? Both of them open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. Then we flip the page to question 84. How does preaching the Holy Gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. God's judgment, both in this life and in the life to come, is based on this Gospel testimony. How does the Kingdom of Heaven, how is, excuse me, the Kingdom of Heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline. According to the command of Christ, those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives, and who, after repeated personal and loving admonitions, 
refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways, and who, after being reported to the church, that is, to those ordained by the church for that purpose, fail to respond also to the church's admonitions. Such persons the church excludes from the Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them. And God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. Such persons, when promising and demonstrating genuine reform, are received again as members of Christ and of His church. Beloved congregation, last year when I accepted the call to serve as the pastor of Trinity United Reformed Church, this did not only entail undergoing an ordination exam, the classes of Michigan, and then also beginning the work, but it also entailed applying to immigrate to the United States. Since my family and I are all Canadians, in order for us to be residents of the United States, there were certain conditions that needed to be met. I had to file oh so much paperwork to be your pastor. And don't say I never loved you. We had to apply for work authorization permits. The United States government even sent someone to the church building to take pictures of the building to make sure it was a real church and that it wasn't just a sham trying to allow people to get into the country. And so, I guess Joe Biden has a picture of me sitting behind my desk in the office. And it was through this process that the United States determined whether or not I was allowed to enter and remain in the United States. We could call this the keys to the United States. But today we want to consider the greatest of kingdoms, God's kingdom, and the keys by which we may enter. The kingdom of God is considered one of the great themes of the Bible, so much so that Herman Ritterboss, a New Testament theologian, says, the whole preaching of Jesus Christ and His apostles is concerned with this one subject, the kingdom of God. Did you catch that? The whole preaching of Jesus and the Apostles is concerned with the Kingdom of God. Do we think that way? That the whole of Jesus' message is about how do I get into the Kingdom? And the whole Bible is about this, isn't it? In Genesis through Deuteronomy, we see 11 times in those five books the Kingdom is mentioned. And then this idea begins to pick up steam in 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Samuel. And the whole thing is about the kingdom. The people are looking for God's kingdom. But they know it can't be Israel with all of her sins. And they know it can't be Judah since Israel and Judah would both be exiled. But they knew that there was a kingdom to come. That's what David prophesied about. He says in Psalm 145, Your kingdom, O God, is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. 
we heard this morning from the prophet Nathan that an eternal kingdom of God was promised to David. And so the Jews of old were often looking to God and asking, where is the kingdom? Where is your kingdom, God? Where is your throne? Where are your armies? Where is your king? We are looking for the kingdom. And so we must not miss the importance of Jesus' first sermon in Matthew 4. If you have a Bible, just flip a few chapters back to Matthew 4, verse 17, where the first sermon of the Gospels from the Lord Jesus Christ says this, Matthew 4, verse 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was a gunshot in the night, so to speak. The kingdom of God has arrived. The king has arrived. And there is a way to get into Jesus' kingdom. Now, I know many of you were born as citizens of this kingdom, the United States. But Jesus' kingdom isn't a kingdom that you can be born into. I had to apply to become, I should say, apply to live here. Jesus' kingdom isn't a kingdom you can apply for. So how do we get into Jesus' kingdom? How do we become part of God's great kingdom? The Bible says you need to be given the keys. And when the keys are given to you, you can go to the glorious gates of righteousness and you can put it in the lock and turn the key and enter God's kingdom. I want us to see for our time together this evening that Jesus in His infinite wisdom gives to the church the keys so that we can open the kingdom of heaven but also close the kingdom of heaven. Jesus gives the church the keys to open and close the kingdom of heaven. I want to show you three things this evening. The kingdom established, and then the key of the Word, and the key of Christian discipline. But first we want to notice the kingdom established, and I want to just focus on one word in question 83 of our Heidelberg in, in the Heidelberg Catechism, and that word is kingdom. What is the kingdom of God. Well, I think it's evident that Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom in Matthew 16 because we read in our first verse of our Scripture reading this evening that the location of Jesus' teaching is at Caesarea of Philippi. About 25 miles north of Galilee and this region of Israel, or I should say Rome, was famous for its worship of the Canaanite god Baal, the Greek god Pan, and also for the the worship of the Roman emperor Augustus. Three gods being worshipped in this one place. And Jesus looks at His disciples and notice His question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man is Jesus' messianic title. 
It's not referring to him as just a human, but the one who will come to Israel as the Messiah. The Jews knew when Jesus came and said He was the Son of Man that He was making a claim to be the one who the Old Testament prophesied would come and save. In fact, Daniel chapter 7 is where this term comes from. And it says these words, Behold, in the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And He came to the Ancient of Days, Jehovah God, and was presented before Him. That's what the prophet Daniel prophesied. Jesus is asking His disciples here, who is the Messiah? He's saying, I am the Son of Man. I am the Savior of the world. This is halfway through Matthew's Gospel. And he's on the doorstep of everyone else's kingdom. Baal is worshipped here. Pan is worshipped here. Augustus is worshipped here. And he's saying, who do you say is king? Who do you say the Son of Man is? Who do you say is Lord? Is it Baal? Is it Pan? Is it Augustus? Or is it Jesus? Who do the people, the crowds, say that the Son of Man is? Remember that some speculated that He was John the Baptist uh, who was beheaded by Herod in, uh, earlier in Matthew's Gospel. But Jesus had done such wonders that even Herod wondered if John the Baptist was resurrected. Others speculated maybe He was Elijah. If you're interested in Malachi 4, uh, verses 4-6, through God prophesies through the prophet. He says, I will send Elijah to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And the Jews, even to this day, when they celebrate the Passover, leave an empty chair at the table in case Elijah comes to dine with them. Some mention Jeremiah. Since there was a tradition that thought he would be the forerunner to the Messianic age. But notice that in all the answers of the people, not one of them says that Jesus is the Messiah. They say He could be a forerunner to the Messiah. He could be a prophet of the Messiah. But He could never be the Messiah. But more important, Jesus asks in verse 15, who do you say that I am? The word you is plural. Meaning, who do you as disciples say that I am? And Peter speaks up on behalf of the whole group. And if there was one disciple you would want to speak on your behalf, it wouldn't be Peter. How often he would run his mouth and pay the consequences for it. He would rebuke Jesus and Jesus would say to him, get behind me, Satan. He would draw the sword and cut off the high priest's ear and Jesus would rebuke him again. He would even deny the Lord, be filled with shame and embarrassment. But this is Peter's finest hour. This is the disciples' finest hour. You are the Christ. The Son of the living God. This is an incredible confession. It's an incredible profession of faith. 
See, the reason the crowds didn't think Jesus could be the Messiah is because they didn't want a king who would save them from their sins. They wanted a king who would save them from Rome. But what Peter is grasping here is that Jesus isn't a militaristic Messiah. He isn't a Messiah who has come to uh, overthrow oppression. But He is a deliverer of His people and He has come to deliver them from sin. He is a king, yes. That's what Christ means. Prophet, priest, and king. But He is also one who will be the suffering servant. Who would offer Himself up for His people and then would reign on the throne of grace. What Peter is confessing is that Jesus is Israel's anointed king. The son of the living God. Jesus' emotion at this response is palpable. Look with me at verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus is beginning here to define His kingdom. The kind of king He is. And the kingdom of God is not Israel's theocracy, The kingdom of God is not on earth like Rome. Jesus is telling us that His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. That's what this means. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build My church. He is saying that as Peter is confessing Christ, recognizing His anointing, Jesus is saying, I will build my church upon your confession. That when people spiritually embrace Jesus as the Messiah, when people come to Christ and accept His Gospel message, Jesus is building His church. The Apostle Peter or excuse me, the Apostle Paul even says this. That the church is not built upon Peter. The church is not built upon any man-made document or person, but he is the church is built upon, Paul says, Ephesians 2, verse 20, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. It's the confession of Peter that Jesus builds His church upon. A spiritual church. Not a church built on a human being. Not a church built with walls or turrets or armies. But it's a spiritual kingdom upon the conviction that Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. Peter repeats this in his own epistle in 1 Peter 2. He says, you yourselves are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. 
Jesus is telling us, teaching us, that when somebody repents of their sins and confesses Christ as Lord, there is Jesus with His trowel and cement building a house, a kingdom, living stones in a spiritual house. So how do we define the kingdom? What is the kingdom? The kingdom then is wherever true believers are found. Regardless of the church they're a member of, when people submit to Christ as their Savior and their King and seek to live under His total rule, there is God's kingdom in their midst. It is a spiritual kingdom, not one of armies, not one of weapons, not one of earthly power, but it is a kingdom of salvation. It's a kingdom of grace. And if it's spiritual in its nature, that means, and I think sometimes we need to hear this, that the kingdom of God does not run along the walls of our church. God's kingdom is bigger than Trinity United Reformed Church. And God's kingdom is bigger than the United Reformed Church. But wherever there are people trusting in Christ and submitting to Him as King, there it is. Whether it's in Brazil, Netherlands, even Canada and the United States. God's kingdom is where Christ is king. Christ is king over our hearts and He is building a kingdom in this world even where Satan reigns, taking ground His kingdom is being built through us. So when the Catechism says that the kingdom of heaven can be opened and closed and that there are some people inside of it, some people outside of it, it is imperative that we are part of the kingdom. Because if there is a kingdom of Christ, the corollary is that there is also a kingdom of darkness. We see this throughout the New Testament, that there is a prince of the power of the air. That there is a darkness at work in the world. It's imperative that we experience this salvation. Let's look at the key of the word. How do we get into this kingdom? See, in the world in which we live, it's pretty standard to have a lock and a key. For our homes, an ordinary key is all we need, but some might want a motion detector, alarms, and a security system. Businesses have chained links and security guards and barbed wire. Whatever it is, we all use keys to allow certain people in and to keep some people out. And so does Jesus give keys to the church. Look at verse 19. I will give you this spiritual church 
Peter, the first apostle of the church, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He says that the church has a powerful tool, the key to admit all who humbly fear the Lord, but he also gives the church the power to exclude those who do not trust in the Lord, who are unholy. The first of the keys that Jesus gives to the apostles is the preaching of the Word. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The apostles were called to be preachers of the kingdom. And that Greek word for preach, keruso, is the same word for herald. And in the Bible times, before a king would travel through his town, he would send forth his heralds to go before him and to proclaim, the king is coming, make way for the king. In the same way, Christ has heralds. He sends into the world, make way for the king. The kingdom is coming. He sends His heralds to proclaim and publicly declare to all believers, each and every one, His message, the Gospel promise. And through the heralding of that Gospel promise, we are reminded that by a true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them for the sake of Christ's merit. What are preachers to proclaim? Christ heralds to proclaim that Jesus has come. That He has died for the sins of all who would trust in Him. And that by that action, their faiths are, that by faith, trusting in Christ, their sins are forgiven and the doors of heaven burst wide open. When preachers proclaim in the name of Christ that your sins are forgiven and they confess with their hearts or their mouths and believe in their hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord, the key turns in the lock. Notice what the catechism says the key of heaven is not. The key of heaven is not what you have done. The key to get into heaven is not where you're from if you were baptized, if you memorized the Heidelberg Catechism. The key of heaven is not if you are innocent. The key to get into heaven is the blood of Jesus Christ. That Christ, or excuse me, that God, because of Christ's merit, forgives all their sins. And so you come to the gates of heaven on your last day. And if you are clothed in the blood of Christ, that is the key to enter. I want you to notice the hope that our catechism gives us tonight. That because of Christ's merit, or God, because of Christ's merit, forgives all their sins. Is there a sin too great for God to forgive? Catechism reminds us that there is no sin so grievous, no sin so great that can bar entry to God's kingdom of those who are clothed in the blood of Christ. 
and that when you stand before the gates, there will be the murderer on the cross with Christ. Took someone's life, but he is clothed in the blood of Christ. There he is. Or what about the publican who stole by his taxes uh, money from Jewish people seeking to serve the Lord, but who nonetheless beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You will see him there at the gates of heaven, clothed in the blood of Christ. All his sins forgiven. All his sins forgiven. All my sins forgiven. As one author says, it takes but one look at the cross by faith. And the gates of heaven swing open. But preaching also declares that sins are not forgiven if you do not repent. The same message that opens the kingdom of heaven shuts it for people who don't believe. Look at verse 19. The key that unlocks also locks. The word that bind, or uh, looses also binds. We see this even in that famous chapter in John chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. The wrath of God remains on him. The Gospel saves the sinner who repents, but it also renounces the bully. It warns those who would rather not attend worship. It admonishes the stubborn sinner who sits in the pew but chooses not to follow Jesus. The pulpit needs to be a comforting word, but also a convicting word. Preaching can be comforting when it's received with repentance and faith. When we trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But preaching is convicting when it's met with disinterest. With unrepentant unbelief. The catechism says, then the doors of heaven are closed. I think there's a word of application that needs to be brought to us this evening. The second Helvetic confession, I know, it sounds so nerdy, makes a profound point. It says, when the Word of God is preached, the Word of God is spoken. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. That it is as if God Himself is speaking to you. So how should we listen to sermons? If it is the proclamation of the gospel truth and it is both life and death, then listening aright is very important. Yet as many of us know, we can come to church and we can practice the dangerous art of sermon critique without repentance. And I know this because I am this way. We can come to church and listen to a sermon with an ear of an art critic rather than somebody who needs to repent and believe the Gospel. But there's another aspect to listening. There is no comfort or conviction received if we do not come 
with humble hearts in acceptance and submission. I'm not saying that we never test the spirits. James tells us we need to test the spirits. That I, that if I or someone else proclaims something to you that is not true or unbiblical, it's not that we need to accept it wholeheartedly or happily. Of course not. But Paul, or excuse me, the key was given to Peter as Christ's official herald, and those who'd hear him should regard it as Christ speaking. And the Bible-based words he speak, ought, speaks ought to be embraced as the word of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so our response and our listening should be received in that way. That when somebody proclaims the word, that we receive it as God's word himself. Unless it contradicts the Bible. We receive it with all of its authority and all of its power and our response is not predicated on how it was delivered. Some of the most important preachers in human history have been people who are not eloquent in speech. Think of Moses. Think of Paul. In church history, think of Jonathan Edwards. They're not persuasive, but they were faithful heralds of the message given. Whoever comes to this pulpit and proclaims the Word of God, we ought to be like Bereans who receive the message with great eagerness. Let us examine the Scriptures every day and to see if what is being spoken is true. The Gospel is proclaimed Receive it in faith. Well, let's turn to that third and or that third and final point and that second key of the kingdom, the key of Christian discipline. We read in verse 19: whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the second key. The church's ministry of discipline. Church discipline, though scarcely practiced in the modern church today, is no doubt a biblical mandate. In the book of Revelation, Jesus actually addresses seven churches, and one of the churches he addresses in Revelation chapter 2 is the church in Pergamum. And to the church in Pergamum, he rebukes them for not practicing church discipline. He says this, I have this against you, some of you, that you have some there, excuse me, who hold fast to the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans, unchristian teaching, as well as eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. That's unchristian lives. Jesus rebukes the church of Pergamum for letting sins of doctrine and letting sins, mortal sins, whatever you want to call them, sins against the Ten Commandments, in their midst, because discipline was supposed to be practiced there. Notice in the Catechism in question 85, preaching opens and closes, but the Christian discipline closes and opens. That's what verse 19 is saying, in bind and bound. That this needs to be practiced for the same purpose 
of saving souls. This means that it is the officers of the church's job, then apostles and now elders and pastors, to close the kingdom of heaven when somebody practices sin and refuses to repent. Now, notice that the catechism doesn't say that Christian discipline begins with the consistory. The catechism rightly notes there are three steps of discipline. I'll give you a few examples. If somebody gets into a fight with somebody else in the church, or say somebody steals from you, or somebody isn't practicing the Sabbath, the catechism reminds us that the first step of discipline begins with personal and loving admonitions. If you flip to Matthew chapter 18, Jesus teaches us that private sins between two people, you don't need to come to me as the pastor, you don't need to go to the consistory or the pope, but you can deal with it one-on-one. Personal. Done in a loving way, of course. So if somebody socks you in the face, go talk to them. If somebody does something against you, go talk to them and admonish them. Repent of that evil thing you did. But then second, if your brother refuses to repent, it says you take one or two others along. And if they refuse to repent, then, Jesus says, take it to the church. Matthew 18, verse 17, he says, then you tell it to the church. That if your brother will not listen to the admonitions of your pastor or the elders, Jesus says, then let that person be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Christ is saying here is you regard the unrepentant sinner as an unbeliever. As they're not Christian. The church, the catechism says, excludes such people from the Christian community. That if they're addressed personally, they're addressed by the church, or personally with one or two witnesses, then they're addressed by the church, and they still refuse to repent, that they should be dismissed, excluded from the Christian community. This is what we call excommunication. This is the saddest thing that can happen in our church. R.C. Sproul says it's even worse than never knowing Christ at all. Because you knew Him, you knew of the Gospel, and you forsook Him. Our church order calls it the extreme remedy. It should only be done with patience and with tears and weeping. And the congregation, you folks, should be praying for those who are put under discipline. And when someone is excommunicated, it should disturb us because in some ways it is, it is like a spiritual death sentence. They're excluded, says the catechism, from the kingdom of God. Now one question a lot of us have when we think of the subject of excommunication is, well, are we not all sinners? Why do some sinners receive discipline and others don't get discipline for their sin? But let, us be, let it be known this evening that what merits discipline before God 
is not severity of the sin. It's the unrepentant heart that is disciplined. There's only one sin for which someone can be excommunicated. You think, oh, it must be a bad one, right? Murder, adultery, theft. No, it's none of those things. There's only one sin you can be excommunicated for. It's impenitence. Hearing the gospel call to repent and trust in Jesus and saying, no. Take any of the Ten Commandments. And if you are impenitent, if we are impenitent, the Catechism says, the remedy is excommunication. This is hard for us to grasp. But the Catechism does not end on a somber note here. Discipline, look at what it says, closes and opens. The purpose of church discipline is not to shatter someone, but to help someone. To help them in their battle with pride in their hearts. It's not done from a spirit of vengeance, but church discipline is done to arise up in the sinner sorrow and repentance so that their souls might be saved. Look who gave discipline to Peter. The all-faithful, all-compassionate one who would lay his life down for the church. For the salvation of the church. He gives discipline to the church that the proud heart might bow to Him. That the hardened sinner might be brought low. And that in the humbled position of being on our knees at the cross, the fullness of sacred, glor- sacred and glorious and saving grace might be given. Excommunication In excommunication, the sinner may be regarded as dead in their sins. But we serve a God who can raise the dead. Amen? We serve a God who can raise up dead sinners. So much so that the form of excommunication in our United Reformed Churches says... Since God does not desire the the death of the sinner, but God desires that he may repent and live, and and he desires to kindle in our hearts a godly zeal to bring back this excommunicated person. They're saying pray for the excommunicated. God doesn't desire their spiritual death, but God desires that the excommunicated would fall on their knees and say like the publican, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And when they do fall on their knees in repentance and faith, the catechism says, they are received again as members of Christ and of his church. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody who's been excommunicated come back. It is a day of celebration. 
God's children rejoice. My son was lost, but now he's found. It's a party. It's a celebration. And it is proof that God is not vindictive. But that we can say, even in excommunication, even that too has a purpose for me. Even church discipline is for the salvation of my souls. When a proud heart is genuinely humbled. Praise God! Grace has come again. And there is hope here, my friends. Some of you may have loved ones who have been excommunicated. Loved ones who are under church discipline. Stay prayerful. Stay busy on your knees. And remember that the key of Jesus' blood is available to all who fall on their knees in humble faith and repentance. And so Jesus gave the church the keys of the kingdom. They opened and closed the gates of heaven and eternal life itself. This evening, have you trusted in Christ for your entrance into the kingdom? Have you thrown off everything else but what we sang this morning? Nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. His blood, His blood, His blood. Blessed is the man who with John on Patmos can say after this, maybe even after this sermon, I looked and behold in heaven a door was opened. The door is open today to trust in Christ, to repent of your sin, and be assured of eternal life. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your kingdom that Your kingdom has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that it was not in Israel, it was not in Rome, but it was in that secret place, that spiritual work that You did in the hearts of Your disciples then and You are working in the hearts of Your disciples now. We thank You, Lord, that You have entrusted to Your church the preaching of the Word. That in this, the gates of heaven are open and people feel the weight of their sins and the salvation offered in Jesus. And yet our hearts are heavy in thinking about the subject of discipline and how weighty it is and how, Father, so many who seem to profess Christ fall away. But Lord, we pray that through even this ecclesiastical means that You would continue to bring back sinners to Yourself. And that, Lord, You would through these things purify Your church and be glorified in and through us We pray in Christ's name. Amen.